The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Ken, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to the 100 Years War to learn about Joan of Arc. What's up, Joan? Joan (laughs) Joan. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, was Joan of Arc a heretic? Oh, ouch. Yes, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious. What do we know? Well, there's a lot to be discussed because she is um, interesting, controversial. She's a saint. And so, um, and she's interesting because it's hard. Like she is a woman who has claimed that she had a vision that God wanted her to do things. I know there's a lot of mythical things that go along with her in addition to her, um, her story. So it's like, yeah, what's fact, what's mystery, what's myth. So Brooke, as a non-history person, Mm. per se, Mm -hmm. although now I feel like you don't deserve that title. I'm like the the understudy to the histories. Yeah, like you're there. (laughs) What do you know about Joan of Arc? Uh, I know she's like the OG Banff of the the war, the Hundred Years War, and she went off to fight. Um, There's some battle scene that I feel like wasn't, she has like this big speech that's about all I remember of her. She does. She has many. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that's awesome though. Those are those are accurate things. Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> understudy point one. Point one. Um, <laughs> no, she. Um, yeah, she. It, but what I'm so excited because we have Jackie Nelson, who is a colleague of mine at Plymouth State University. Cool. She's a military historian. Hello, women in war. Boom, hey, boom, Jackie. Boom. So, and I, we, we, Jackie and I were talking about this before we started recording, but. I don't know how many, I mean, we talk about statistics Mm -hmm. about women in the field of history, and I don't know how many, I mean, there 35% of uh, tenured professors in uh, in history are women. Okay. So um, vastly under the 50, about 50% of tenured professors in general are women. So it's about even at the college campuses, which is kind of cool. But then of course, as we've talked about many times. Like of the, those who's in history. Yeah, of those who's in history. And then of and, those who actually covers war. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was telling Jackie, I was like, I think that this would be an interesting subset for my research to be like how many women are actually military military historians doing what you're doing. I know. Doing. Does she like have any colleagues that she knows of in the field that are women? I mean, there, I mean, definitely like, and especially in the, the field of, of 
history and women's history, like, you know who the other women are, you know, like, like, uh, and it's, and oh, sure. Okay. So it's kind of cool, but I, I, I want to like look into that more because she's got to be a pretty narrow, like, and she was telling me that there were about, there were over a couple hundred, there were a couple hundred people gra- who graduated in military history with their masters. Okay. Um, and she was like one of a handful of girls in the program out of a couple hundred that graduated that year. Wow. So I was like, whoa. I mean, so that's a, you know, that's not that's uh, generalizable to mm-hmm. all military historians, right, but right, like right. in her program, that's where, you know, she was at. So uh, pretty fascinating. So fun, interesting story. Jackie and I actually went to high school together. We graduated the same You're, year. Stop it. Yeah. And now you are both professors at the same college. So I walked in when I when I switched jobs this summer. I like walked into the department meeting and I was like, "No freaking way!" <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of wild, and that you both are history. Prof- like it, it makes you think that you had this really robust history program in your high school. No, we bonded over that too. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of like, you know. It almost opposes our feeling on it, like, oh, more robust programming. And your guy's like, no, actually, don't robust it. We'll go figure it out ourselves. Yeah, seriously. And then we'll be leaders in the field. Yeah, we had a pretty <laughs> terrible high school. We, we bought, like we talked for a while before we recorded about how terrible the program, the experience was. Um, and it was... Yeah, it was like pretty disappointing. And, you know, especially in like historic research and writing, right, and some right. of like the skills of being a historian, um, you know, yeah, my- that you've acquired along the way, but certainly no one helped you get there. Yeah, we both <laughs> were like, we got to college. We're like, what is all of this? So I feel like that's most students at this point. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so anyway, she's amazing. And, um, the, we're going to talk, we talked about, uh, Joan of Arc together and, I similarly, similar to you, probably could have given you the bullet points of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. She's a young girl. She, you know, has this vision from God that she needs to get England out of France during yep. the Hundred Years' War. She does stuff. I think she like goes to battle. I don't know if she's like a mascot or what, but she like she's definitely a figure. She's that a figure. rallies others. Yeah, and. Then she's captured and they burn her at the stake. And I right. knew that. So, you know, so it's kind of interesting what I love about Jackie. She, first of all, every student at Plymouth State just raves about her <laughs> classes. She's like by far the best professor in our department. Oh, and that's awesome. Yeah. She, you know, in terms of like student love, <laughs> the love of the student, which isn't that what you're there for? <laughs> well, they don't love me. I mean, I'm throwing myself under the bus here. <laughs> Doubtful, very doubtful. Um, but uh, but I loved listening to her. I totally understand why students just adore her because it, she is a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, and that's great. I'm so excited for her to introduce herself to our audience. Yay. Take it away, Jackie. I'm Jackie Nelson. Um, I'm a military historian. I teach at Plymouth State University with Kelsey. Um and I specialize mostly in American history. So my focus has predominantly been around the American Revolutionary War, but it sort of spans out. I'm just sort of obsessed with warfare in general. So I have minuscule expertise in a lot of other different facets, but that one's certainly my favorite. That's awesome. <laughs> 
your master's thesis was mm-hmm. on the American Revolution. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. It was on the uh, Trenton and Princeton campaign. So um, like I was saying to you earlier, that's the crossing of the Delaware. Um, it's this battle that starts on um, the very morning after Christmas. And it was at this point of the Revolutionary War when it seemed like the revolution was just going to, like, crumble to pieces. We had just had a series of horrific disasters in New York, and everybody was just sort of at the point that we're like, well, we gave it our all. Like, this is done. This is over with. And Washington and the small army that he had left with him just threw this Hail Mary at the end of the year. And within the span of about a week, they fought twice at Trenton in New Jersey and then at Princeton in New Jersey, fighting against both the Hessians, the Germans, and the British, and just had like these three back-to-back miraculous victories that never, none of them should have gone the way that they did. But all three of them went perfectly, and it just kind of kept the revolution alive so that it could continue in the coming years. That's awesome. What a cool topic to learn, (laughs) like, to go into depth on. I feel like living in New England, we're surrounded by, you know, revolutionary sites and, Mm -hmm. you know, especially driving through New York, they're everywhere and and Vermont, they're everywhere. And so it's cool to I, it's so much of the military aspect like the, mm-hmm. the war itself um i think is lost on on me and i think it's really cool yeah. that you're an expert in that so oh, i'm very annoying to travel with <laughs> for that very reason i'm just like do you guys know what happened here like it's just like i get too overly excited about all of it that's so cool yeah <laughs> Well, today we're going to talk about a well-known figure mm-hmm. in war, Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And this speaks to the fact that you can be in, you know, have uh, expertise in the American Revolution but still touch on something like, you know, medieval France is right. pretty powerful <laughs> uh, to tell to speak to your talents and mm-hmm. knowledge. Um so Joan of Arc is, lives during the Hundred Years' War, and right. I I know because I'm I'm constantly having to remind people that things are getting better, <laughs> um, even though we had World War One and World War Two right. in the last century. Uh, it was still the least bloodiest century in world history. And the fact that there's a war called the Hundred Years War (laughs) is pretty wild. Um, So can you give us some like broad context to that war and and what brought this whole conflict on to begin with? Yeah. So um, Europe in general, sort of their entire history is just abounding with these numerous conflicts over religion, over power, over territory. And sort of the classic frenemies of England and France, um, they started to have this growing tension in 1066 with uh, William the Conqueror overtaking England and setting up this French monarchy. And so the English still had their own basis of government, had their own um, monarchy, had their own family line that was taking over, but those royals... um, both literally the monarchy itself, the all the aristocrats, all the nobles, they kind of felt like they had sort of this dual power in England while still having some level of nobility in France too. So there's about 300 years where this becomes like a growing problem, particularly as France 
likes to have sort of that shared lineage, but they're also kind of like, okay, you rule your stuff over there. We're going to handle the stuff here. And they didn't really like sort of the constantly encroaching English hands. Um, And it finally comes to a head in uh, sort of like the uh, midway through the 1300s when Charles IV, there's going to be a lot of Charleses. Okay, (laughs) embracing myself. Not a very uh, creative naming family. Charles IV dies and he doesn't have a male heir. So his daughter, Isabella, claims the throne for her son, Edward. One of the Edwards. I don't know the number associated with him. (laughs) Um, But Edward, who is ruling in England. So she claims it for him. Oh, sorry, not his daughter, uh, his sister. So his sister claims it for her son, Edward, in England. But she is ignored partially because she is a woman and her claims are not being accepted. But another facet to it is also that that is opening the door for more involvement from England, where the French monarchy and and political system was kind of trying to cut those ties. Mm. So instead, it goes to his cousin. I think it was Philip. So this is Charles the Fourth's cousin. Yes. All right. <clears throat> so it passes to him Philip. instead, and <laughs> we we spend about ten years or so with just like this growing tension between both sides because both Edward and Philip are like, no, I'm I'm the rightful heir. Like I'm, you know, they're just kind of like going at it until finally, um, I think it's in 1337. I think is when the war finally erupts. And so from there, you have the Hundred Years' War. And it's not a hundred, like, consecutive years of fighting. Um, I always assumed that. Like, it's really what they're trying to say is it was a long-ass war. (laughs) Right. If you have a hundred years of just straight fighting and nobody has gained an advantage by that point, that's a draw. Yeah. (laughs) There is no winning that war. Um, So it was just kind of like punctuated by you would have a couple years of like really intense conflict and then some sort of like peace treaty, truce, ceasefire would be arranged. Things would cool down for a little while and then something would exacerbate tensions and it would erupt again. So it just kind of like ebbs and flows through, through 100 years or so. Joan comes in in what historians consider sort of like the last phase of the war. It's sometimes uh, known as the Lancastrian War because that was the English noble family at the time. So she's coming on the scene just after Henry V has had a massive success that is still like picked apart in military colleges now um, at Agincourt where he took on a numerically superior French force and just using like strategy and um, technology on his side was able to overcome them. From there, it's sort of like this succession of English victories. It is like this boulder that is rolling towards France. And a lot of the nobility in France are starting to think that the finish line to this war is coming and it's not going to end in England's favor. Or in France's favor. Yes, sorry. I'm not going to end in France's favor. So with that increasing tension and with sort of that increasing fear, there's a treaty that is signed in an effort to, you know, bring around one of those pieces so that France can kind of like get their feet back under them, where this at this point, we're on Charles VI, and he marries off his daughter to Henry V. 
as one of those diplomatic marriages. The episode you had recently on Augustus, he talked a lot about how like diplomatic marriages and how they were used to sort of settle tensions between royal families. And that was the case, is that he married off his daughter to Henry V to bring about peace for a little while, but Charles VI only lives for two years after that. And when that happens, Henry V claims that as a result of that treaty and this marriage, he has a right to claim the throne for France. But Charles VI already has a male heir. He has, do you want to guess? Charles? Charles VII. Mm. <laughs> so, yes! So, yes! Nailed it! Crushing it. Right. So Charles VII, um, so he's often referred to as the Dauphin, or uh, which is the French word for uh, prince. He claims, obviously, that that throne is his. Mm. So uh, the war sort of like re-erupts yet again as these two are sort of battling it out for the crown. And Charles has a lot of French support initially because there is already sort of that growing intent that there is England and there is France. And even though we have all of these like deep-seated connections, we really need to start pushing in English influence out. So there's a lot of support in France for Charles initially. Um, and they look on him lovingly as like being the prince, you know, being part of like this royal family, this lineage. But England is again just having like military victory after military victory. And over the next couple of years, Charles just loses more and more support. His armies are getting ravaged. The public is not standing behind him quite as much. And he's pretty much pushed back to a point that he only has a small amount of territory that he has, like, real possession and power over. Hmm. And it's at that point that Joan is going to come onto the scene. Okay. So men are – this seems to be a pattern mm -hmm. that as men are not succeeding as leaders, mm -hmm. women – there's a space. There's a space. For women to sort of – be like, yo, <laughs> yeah, where you at? <laughs> right, right. And we can definitely see like women throughout the Hundred Years' War were totally used as tools, like these diplomatic marriages. You had mothers that were trying to have influence over mm -hmm. royal sons. You had, um, you know, daughters being married off. You had sisters being married off. Like we can definitely see the way that women were like sidelined at the time, which I think is another reason that makes Joan so like – I was just so heroic in this time <laughs> as she comes out. Yeah, absolutely. So give me some background on Joan. Mm -hmm. Like pre, she's young, Very right? Young. Is she yeah. wealthy, poor? What's her deal? Very poor. Okay. Um, peasant family, farming family. Um, there so was, random. Yeah. There was never any indication that she was going to be doing anything other than farming. That's what she was learning as a trade. She was going to be likely, she was 13 when she has her vision from God. So she was 13. She was coming into marrying age. Within a few years, she would have been married off. She would have been having a family of her own. And it was fully expected she was going to continue farming. You know, she was going to be married off to another farmer and that was going to be her path. She never questioned it. Her family never questioned it. That was just her future. Can you imagine yourself at 13 thinking about getting married? Oh my God. I, well, okay. In full fairness, at 13, I was thinking about getting married, but okay. it was to any member of the Backstreet Boys at the oh. time. So I, I certainly had full visions, I think, but certainly not as ambitious as hers became. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> you went Backstreet Boys. Huh? I was Backstreet Boys. I was all the an sync fan. So we'll see. Well, we're gonna have to fight when this is over. Yeah. <laughs> Military <laughs> campaigns will be waged. <laughs> will be waged on behalf of Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. <laughs> Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are yes you, but they are fully scripted. You can Look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, And they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. Yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, which is really cool. So definitely if you're interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So she's young. She's 13. And she has this vision. What is the vision? So she's out in the garden. She's working. And she has a vision where three saints appear. And they say that not only is she going to be the um, savior of France, But they're saying that God is giving her the mission that she needs to drive the English out of France, and she needs to make sure that Charles is crowned as the king. And, I mean, we have very limited records about her early life. A lot of this comes from her later trial when she was finally captured. Um, But it it seems like she never questioned it. You know, Mm -hmm. she never questioned the validity of it. And, and of course, plenty of scholars have tried to like dissect where this came from. Was it, you know, um, you know, plenty of people believe that she had a vision from God. Other people think maybe it was hallucinations from any number of illnesses, ailments that she could have sort of the go-to I feel like a lot for women when they have sort of one of these fantastical things happen is she's making it up. Mm. You know, she's making the whole thing up. She's hysterical. Right, exactly. So we don't really know specifically uh, and certainly can't prove where this came from, but she seems to have never questioned that it was a vision from God. Uh, Does she? It's so, like, my 13-year-old brain, you know, thinking about not war. Mm Mm-hmm. 
why would she care about like you would think she has a lot of things on her mind mm-hmm. like marriage and supporting her family and being a girl on a farm like mm-hmm. you would think like why would she be thinking about military campaigns like it does she have are people from her village going off to war and dying? Like, where does that come from? I mean, undoubtedly, she would have known people involved in the conflict. Um, and for a lot of people in France at the time, they feel a lot of pressure to kind of pick one side or the other. Mm-hmm. So, like, are you in favor of the English who seem to be gathering up more and more territory, or are you loyal to France? And it's a hard position to be in because you do have the matter of wanting to be loyal to France. It's a very, very deeply religious country Mm. as well. So there's also, um, and and this is kind of a constant throughout Christian societies too, that there is sort of like this general notion that you're meant to struggle and you're meant to suffer. And a lot of that is a test of your faith Mm. all along. So um, she would have definitely been surrounded by the war. She, um, her entire village, especially her family, would have been kind of met with those questions of, okay, well, if the English come here, like, which side do we take? Do we take survival and let the English overcome Mm -hmm. us? Do we remain loyal to France? And for a lot of people who um, have those religious connections, it's everything sort of feels as if it's this religious test of, is is my decision going to make God happy? Hmm. You know, like, is this what God wants for me? If it's all a test and you make the wrong decision, you can get punished by God. So for her, she probably has not thought a lot militarily up to this point, but the vision itself becomes one of those tests of God. Like, my faith is being tested. I've seen these saints, these saints have told me, I am the one who is going to drive England out of France, and I am the one who has to make sure that the prince gets crowned, And if she's just like, I'm not doing that, (laughs) like, I'm going to keep farming, I'm going to get married, whatever, that's her denying God. Hmm. And when you do have those really, really, like, religious roots, you're going to do whatever is going to make God happy. So for her, it seems like she never questioned it. She was just like, okay, like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but this is what God needs me to do. She, We know she immediately took a vow of chastity. And the next thing that we really have on record for her, she kind of like disappears for three years. Like we have like nothing um, historically on what happens to her from when she has that vision to three years later, her father is trying to marry her off. Mm -hmm. And we know that she goes to a local court and she convinces them to prevent this from happening because she took a vow of chastity. Mm -hmm. She's like, I can't be married. Basically, at that point, you're not a nun, but you're like of that level of like, I'm married to God. Like I don't, I can't be married to somebody else. And she wins that case. So she doesn't get married off, but that's the next thing we have of her. Yeah. Her dad must've been pissed. Yeah, right. (laughs) I know. Well, and it's, it's so interesting to think of like how her family probably approached it Mm -hmm. is you, your, her parents are also deeply religious people. Um, we know her mother is a big supporter of hers because after her trial, her mother like continually lobbies until another trial is done to clear her name long after she's gone, Hmm. but to clear her name. So we know that her mother at least believes her to some extent, but it's also, it's a 13 year old girl saying on some random Tuesday that yeah. three saints appeared to her and told her that she's about to win a war and get a new king yeah, crowned. Like, and they're like, of course you are. You know? <laughs> so it's like, right. So, you know, like for him, it's like whether he thinks his daughter's crazy or if he's just like, 
like, look, this is what we do here. Like, you need to get married off. Yeah. You know, this is this is the way. If <laughs> my choices at 13 were marry some old farmer <laughs> or take yeah. a vow of chastity right. and believe in right. fairy saints. <laughs> right. I might go with the fairy saints. Right. Oh, do I continue to toil away at this farm? With some old man husband. Yeah. Or do I get to go on this adventure and try to win a war? Like, yeah. Why not? Why not? So what do, So she has this vision. She takes this vow. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get married. Right. And what does she do in this conflict? So what oh. can what can <laughs> a young lady do in this conflict? It's so it's so funny to look at her because she is but by the time that she's like back on the scene, she's 16, maybe 17 years old. So um, still very, very young. But she by the time that she's like coming back and like in this court to try to push off getting married, she's already started to develop a little bit of a following by that point. So the message is certainly getting around about her being the one that's going to, you know, save France. And um, I, I I needed to do a little bit more research on this and, and I haven't found anything yet. But um, one of the things that brings so much attention to her throughout this conflict is that there had already been sort of this popular prophecy in France that um, a maiden was going to arrive in armor, and she was the one that was going to save France. So I don't oh, know where, yeah, I haven't found anything to explain where this rumor came from. So I don't know if it starts around Joan, you know, like maybe she's talking to village people and it's starting to spread around, or if this had been older than that, mm-hmm. and it was just something to give people hope. I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, uh, she's starting to get sort of this following because of people having an attachment to that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so shortly after she wins the case to not get married, she goes to the captain of a local garrison and she's demanding to be brought to the prince. She wants to go to Charles and she's saying, I want to go to him because God has said that I'm the one who's going to win this war. And that captain's like, of course you are. <laughs> like He laughed her away multiple times. And then finally, he agrees to bring her to the prince. And there's a couple different stories as to why. Um, one is that she had started to gain a band of followers, and it was sort of like behooving of that mm. captain to just agree to what that crowd wanted. Um, another indicated that she was speaking to him, and she started describing this loss at the city of Orleans, which she wouldn't have been able to even know about yet. Um, so it helped to kind of like prove her divinity Mm. in a sense like she clearly has a source of otherworldly information um and then the other version says that she just started to call out his faith like publicly and loudly just being like if you don't believe me that god has come to me and told me to do this then maybe you don't believe in god enough and for a very religious country that's a like a deep burn yeah (laughs) so she pulled the god card exactly exactly so whichever one of those versions is true she's able to convince him to bring her to the uh to the prince and um it's a it's a journey that takes a little more than a week 
And in that time, she starts to wear armor. She starts to dress as a soldier. Like, she is, she's taking on this part. She cuts her hair short. Like, Armor's expensive. Where does she get that? Do, I, like, is she, is, does he help her with that? At the um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I could also imagine that it could be coming from those followers, too. Mm. If they really are believing that this is the girl that's going to save France, they're probably likely to get her just about whatever she needs. Mm. So, could have come from there. Could have come from the captain. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but... Okay. Um, but yeah, so she cuts her hair short to look like a man as well. And then she arrives at the palace that the prince is staying in. And the prince has been briefed that she's coming, um, uh, briefed about her overall message that this is a divine mission and stuff. And so um, he ends up uh, trying to sort of test her. Mm. And he dresses up like one of his courtiers. And he mm -hmm. has his courtier dress up like him and sit in his sit in his throne. Classic. Yep. Yep. Fun little game for him. And apparently, like, she comes into the Great Hall and she's already, like, a spectacle because people are curious about her. <clears throat> Certainly have heard a little bit about her up to this point. And now here's this, at this point, 16, 17-year-old girl in armor, hair cut short, sort of like embodying a soldier. And she struts right in and she beelines right for Charles. And, you know, he plays it up and he like, he, you know, goes into a little method acting and he's like, oh, me, you know, I'm just like this humble, uh, you know, uh, courtier, like it's the guy up there. That's the one you're looking for. And she just like, she wouldn't waver. Um, so this already helps to convince him that sort of like with the captain, like maybe you do have some sort of like otherworldly information. And apparently after that, she talks to him and um, uh, talks about things that he only said in prayer. So there's no way she could have known about them. Um, so he's convinced that she is part of this holy mission. But a lot of those around him are concerned that it's witchcraft. Uh, mm. So she also has to be vetted by like the local clergy mm. um, to, you know, they question her and they have to check her for purity, which is a a nice way of saying they check to make sure that she was still a virgin. Yeah. Um, and she passes everything, passes all of their tests. And so Charles is finally convinced that she must have something. What yeah. are the spiritual assessments that you have to undergo <laughs> to prove that God is talking to you? Right. Like, is that like a recite Genesis or like... I mean, I'm sure they tested her on just sort of like general faith you know, okay. and and things like that, and and probably tried to poke holes in her story, but mm. she just didn't waver. Yeah. Um. And so finally, like once she passes all of that, Charles is willing to listen to her, and she's like, "You have to send me to Orleans, the city that is it's tactically important. It's um, you know, sort of like socially and and culturally significant to France, and it's under siege by the English, and it has been for like five months mm. up to that point." Um. She's like, you have to send me there. That's where I have to start, and I have to start pushing the English out. And and he gets convinced to the point that he does. Mm. He sends her and um, a number of forces, mostly like her followers. Um, they arrive at the city, and the way that the English had the siege set up um, is that every once in a while, like these small gaps could form in their line, um, but the English could always close them really quickly if they wanted to. So her and her followers are able to get into the city through one of those gaps. Hmm. And as soon as she gets in, she has an immediate effect on the war um, because she is seen as a hero the second she walks into the city, which is so interesting because she has never set foot on a battlefield. She has no knowledge of military affairs 
whatsoever. Yeah. But the second she walks in, she is that maiden in armor who people believe has been prophesized to save France. Mm. So the second she arrives, they're like, she's here in this city that has been under siege. And I don't know if you've spent any time looking at sieges throughout history, but conditions get pretty horrifying. Like food is always short. Clean water is always short. There's that constant anxiety and fear of when like the final assault is going to come. We have a ton of examples of sieges throughout history where people literally starve to death under siege. So there's, there's a ton of anxiety and fear and morale tanks so quickly um, for defenders and for civilians. And when she arrives, she is like this instant remedy to all of that because not only is this um, maiden now here to save all of us, but she's here in Orleans. So that means like this siege is going to end and like all of this suffering is going to come to a close. Plus then we have the chance of actually winning the war. Yeah. So – she she completely plays this role and she goes among the people and she talks to people and she's hugging and she's helping to like disperse food whenever she can. And for the um, defensive officers that are in Orleans, they're like, good, like that's your job. You do that. Did she bring reinforcements with her or uh, some or did she have to kind of slip into the city? Yeah, so it's, she she's not bringing a huge number, but okay. she's bringing some followers. OK. Um, and so for them, they're sort of like, that's that's your job now. And And the truth is, is that if Joan had done nothing other than that, that's already a huge factor simply because morale can make or break armies. So, and it certainly can make or break battles. So if she just arrives and it's just that persona that's there, that already is having an effect. It is bringing soldiers up. It's making them more apt to fight. It's making the civilian populace better able to sustain the siege. So already she has an effect. But she spends the first couple days just trying to, like, force her way into, like, these tactical meetings of, like, okay, well, how are we handling this thing? And the officers there just kept trying to push her away. And the feminist in me is instantly like, come on, you idiot. Like, like, let her in there. But at the same time, again, we have to remember it's a 16, 17-year-old girl. Yeah, I'm a feminist. and I feel like I'd be like, shut up. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, like, we have to think about how ingrained the idea was that women don't fight at this time. And, like, I can't speak anthropologically as to why that is, but we had... in France. Yeah, we we certainly had... The Vikings had other visions, but, yeah. Right, and the Celts before, like, like, there are plenty, plenty of examples of women fighting throughout European history. But it's so ingrained at this point of like centuries deep of just men fight, women don't. Women are the weaker sex. They can't handle war. So we have that aspect of their society already. And then it's also a teenager. (laughs) So it's like, it's twofold. And like a lot of the people that listen to this are probably like middle school, high school teachers. And you have 16, 17 year olds trying to tell you what to do all the time. Yeah, <laughs> like, regularly. Okay. And yeah, we have some great examples now in a much more progressive society that kids do know what they're talking about yeah. a lot of the times. Greta Thunberg, you yeah. know, like we have these great, it. right. We have these great examples, but we also have plenty of examples where teenagers do not know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, so these guys are like, look, you're doing your job. You're making people happy here. That's fine. Like do that. Be a mascot. Exactly. But she, she didn't, that she she did want to help the populace, but that's not what she was there for. She's like, this is God has put me here for a reason. So she'll finally force her way into those discussions. And 
she will constantly make these suggestions of certain positions to try to hit. She's constantly encouraging direct action. She's encouraging some, um, nothing that's like revolutionary in terms of tactics, but um, certainly like concentrating their efforts into places where the English line might be a little bit weaker. And um, she's denied constantly. The French are like, we've done that. We've tried that. We've done that. You know, everything is just like, we are. We know what we're doing. You don't know what you're doing. She's persistent enough. And in particular, she gets so much support from the soldiers and from the civilian populace because of what they see her as is they're finally like, fine, like you can go and attack this one position. And she is not directly in like the leadership position because she doesn't technically know what she's doing. But she's a standard bearer, so you're usually riding towards the front of the line. You're carrying your flag or you're carrying a symbol that people look to and they're like, this is where like the core of our army is. So she has that position, which also means she's going to be in the heat of the battle. And she's the one that has chosen the location. She has people that are going with her that believe in her. And they go and they crack this hole in the English line just in the first day. And because it's Joan that's there and because she has so much civilian support, all of the civilian militias that have been within this city that's under siege, they all come flocking to her. And the next day, they're able to crack an even larger hole into it. Um, shortly thereafter that, the siege will be lifted. The English will finally have um, a loss large enough that they have to turn around. That was nine days after Joan arrived. What? Nine, nine days? days? Yes. Nine days what after she arrived. persistent little <laughs> exactly. lady. Exactly. And like, there are plenty of detractors throughout history that want to question how important her role was. And, you know, oh, well, like other strategies were being tried. She's not the one that's actually leading. And between the effect that she had on morale and the fact that she pushed for this attack to happen, regardless of her role specifically in it, it has a massive effect if five months into this siege, they were not able to lift it. And then a little over a week later, they are. And and she took an arrow to the chest in the process. And I mean, certainly not a deadly one, but, yeah. um, you know, she got wounded in it. So she really was like right in the heart of the battle. And that has a huge effect for people because her surviving the battle, again, being a teenage girl, like in the core of this, surviving, it sort of further cements that idea that she really is this girl that has been prophesized all this time. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, and she's also a farm girl. A farm like, girl. Yeah. Like I'm I'm trying like I can imagine myself being very persistent coming to a meeting and being like, I have opinions, <laughs> but not opinions on something that like I have no business having an opinion on. Right. Right. If you put me into like some council on the economy right now, yeah. I I would be like, I don't know how money works, but here, let me give you some ideas. <laughs> like, you know, like I have no idea what's going on, but like th this is how much like she believes in herself and how much people believe in her that like really firmly like God has put us here for this reason, you know? Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So she eventually gets captured. Yes. And is this in the same siege or is it somewhere else? No. So after this point, um, the, she 
she doesn't feel like she's she's had an effect, but um, she's like, I'm nowhere near where I'm supposed to be. Like, I have two objectives. I have to get the English out of here, and I have to get Charles specifically to the city of Reims, where traditionally that's where he has to be crowned. Mm -hmm. So um, after this is over, this is a big success. It's like the first turnaround that they've had on the English really in like decades by that point. Um, and so there's like more councils of war, like with Charles after that point, sort of strategizing what our next step is. And she's like, our next step is to go to Reims. And Reims at that point is like in the heart of English held territory. <laughs> like the city itself is um, being held by the Burgundians, which are English allies. And she's just like, no, we we go to Reims now. <laughs> and they're all like, no, we don't. <laughs> like, yeah. like, there's no, there's no getting there. Like, it, they, they were basically like, yeah, we're eventually going to get to Reims, but it's going to be like this slow pullback of forces. And she was just very, very persistent on it. And a lot of people start to relent because her victory at Orleans did have even some people who were detractors because she's a, a young girl, even they were like, there's something otherworldly about this. Like there, you know, God is clearly involved in this if she's able to have the success that she does. Between the success that she's had there and the fact that she has, she's bringing in like thousands of new recruits and volunteers because people are thinking like France might actually turn it around now. So they kind of feel like they have to go whatever direction she's really pushing for because that's what the people are going to want. Um, so they finally start this new campaign in the spring of uh, 1429, I think. Um, they start this new campaign and like she is insistent that they just start making a direct line to Reims and they go and it is literally just like this steamroller. <laughs> like they just are cruising through. They're having like small victory after small victory. They're having a few big victories over the English to the point that when they arrive at Reims in June of that year, the Burgundians just open the gates. They don't even fight for the city. They're like, okay, <laughs> she's yours. So she's able to get Charles to Reims. He gets crowned and he's the official king in France. So that is part A of her mission is to get Charles crowned. But as far as she's concerned, the other part of this is getting the English out. And so even when that's done and she has that victory, she's instantly like, okay, we need to press our advantage. So, you know, we have the English on the rollback here. So we need to go for Paris. Like we need to keep pushing forward. And of course, there are plenty of like military officials who are like, all right, like we've, you know, we've run our army for months now. Like um, we, we, we can't risk actually having a backslide because we push things too hard too fast. But you also had a lot of political advisors who are like, okay, yeah, she has been crucial to getting you crowned, Charles, but you also have to be worried about how powerful she is. The people love her. Um, right now, she's on your side. What happens if the two of you start disagreeing? Do the people take her side or do they take your side? What if she decides she wants to be queen now? Does she kick you out? Do the people back, you know, so there are a lot of people who are very suspicious about her motives and certainly about the power that she has over the people. Um, so she does make a strike towards Paris, but Charles is a little bit more hesitant about the forces that he gives her at that point. So they're unsuccessful in Paris. The campaign season ends for the winter because we just 
this we're at a time we go into halftime for the winter and then we come back. Um, so the next fall, she comes back and there's a town that is being overrun by the Burgundians. So she is sent there with forces to try to protect that town. That's where she ends up getting captured. Um, the Burgundians will hand her over to the English. That's when she's going to have to go to trial. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. It's interesting. Power. Mm-hmm. Like, can a chick just <laughs> kick ass and, like, not question her power? Like, Apparently not. And it's interesting how much of the story has to do with morale and the effect mm-hmm. that she has on people, people's belief in her, you yeah. know? And, and I think there's so many – I'm taking away life lessons about the importance <laughs> of, like, persistence yeah. and getting people – behind your why and your mission Mm -hmm. and a lot of the things that we we know to be true, but she just lives that example. That's so powerful. Absolutely. Okay. So she's betrayed. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this. So um, she, I can't remember exactly how um, the battle goes, but she, she gets captured by the Burgundians and Given all of her earlier military successes, it just all of it seems a little bit suspicious. Um, but supposedly she um, her horse rears up, she falls off and she gets captured. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's it's hard to tell specifically why that would have happened. Um, I'm certainly not like a horse rearing up. Happens all the time. But it it seems hard to explain how she would have gotten captured Mm. because for the most part, she tends to sort of be like in the heart of her command. But I I mean, I never have really seen anything that could conclusively say that she was betrayed leading Mm. into her capture, but there's certainly a lot of suspicion around it. Okay. Who... Who do you think is primarily betraying? Um, so it could it could really come from any direction, but Charles in particular, for all the work that she does to get him into that position and for like all of the quite literal faith that she had that he was supposed to be there, he was never a great monarch. He was never really actually great for that position. And he certainly was not faithful to her. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause even when she gets captured and goes to trial, he makes no efforts to try to get her and no efforts to try to secure her safety at all. So it could have trickled down from the very top. Charles. No, Charles. Oh my gosh. So I recall in French class mm-hmm. as a maybe middle schooler watching a documentary about her trial. Mm-hmm. It's pretty horrible. Yeah. And she's accused of witchcraft. Yes. Classic. She has, she has 70, I think like 70 Charles, uh, Charles, uh, 70 charges um, drawn up against her. Um, and she has several for witchcraft, um, a few for dressing like a man. Um, and then most of them relate around heresy. Heresy. Yes. Okay. That she is basically, it, it, for, for lack of a better word, she's lying about her relationship with God. Like she's saying that God is the one that's directing her on all of these things, but um, she's making that up. Hmm. 
I so in my undergrad experience, I wrote a history paper. Um, I got to study at the Library of London mm. um, and hold wearing white gloves newspaper clippings mm-hmm. from the 1500s. So oh we're ahead a little bit in time here. Yeah, but um, I was researching cross dressing mm. in Elizabethan England. Wow, and um, it's a thing. Yeah. And peop- it was illegal yeah. to wear clothing out of your station and for women to wear men's clothing. An abomination. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were so worried about a bunch of different things mm-hmm. because like, how would we possibly know that that's a woman and that's a man right. if she's wearing pants? Yep. And um, they were so worried about <laughs> dress. <laughs> right. And it's hilarious because right. I haven't worn a dress in, can't tell you, but I think yeah. people know that I'm a woman. Yeah. I don't know. We'll find out. Right. We can just do quizzes on the street. Exactly. That'll be your newest segment. <laughs> Am I a woman? Dude, can you tell? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So she has 70 charges brought 70. against her. One of them is that she's dressing like a man mm-hmm. and she's burned at the stake. Yes. So By she, the English. By the English. Yeah. Oh. She. So the English, it, the, whole, the whole trial is a farce because the English have to find her guilty. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's um, especially when it comes to the heresy issues, because if she is found to be telling the truth that God actually directed her to kick the English out of the country and to make sure that Charles is the king, A, they want to discredit Charles because the English king still wants to be in control. Um, and if they are able to discredit the girl that got him there, then that's a pretty easy path for them to be able to be like, all right, like you're not actually the king. But furthermore, surrounding this issue of religion, if God is actually directing somebody (laughs) to kick the English out of a country, that shines a pretty bad light on England. And no country of the time wants to think about God not being on their side. They are all, most of them cement their power around the idea of God being on their side. So if she's telling the truth and God was actually directing her to kick the English out, that means the English have to basically like pull out of this war altogether. They have to pull out of France because they they can't make a slight against God. Yeah. Um, And certainly it would look wrong for the English clergy who for the entirety of the Hundred Years' War have been telling them that God wants them to wage this war, that they're supposed to take over France and do it in the name of God. When you find out that on the opposite side, here's this, at this point, 17, 18-year-old girl who is winning a war because God is clearly on her side. So they mm-hmm. had to be able to prove that she had been lying the whole time. And they're not not—they're not capable of, of getting to her. They kept her in a jail that where she was abused, still couldn't get her. Um, they... Um, they use some of their best legal minds to try to trick her into saying something that they could easily prove as heresy, and they couldn't get it. Um, they finally convince her to recant her story by threatening to burn her alive. And so she recants her story, and then supposedly she's in jail that very night, and the saints appear to her again. And they didn't like, they, um, pretty much like lambast her for choosing to preserve her own life over the truth. So she comes out the next day and she's like, I was lying. Like, I I saw them. I had this vision. I was led by God. Had it again. I had it again. Like, 
like very clearly, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And if that means you're going to burn me, that means you're going to burn me. And they did. She was 19 years old and they dragged her out to the town square and they burned her three separate times. They burned her. They burned her corpse. They burned her corpse again. And then they threw her ashes into the river. Wow. Yeah. 19. 19 years old. Mm -hmm. What have you accomplished? By 19? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly didn't marry the Backstreet Boy I intended to. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So – what? So part one of her mission is to get Charles on the throne. Mm-hmm. Success. Right. Part two is to get the English out of France. Mm-hmm. And she's partially successful in that she like pushes them back a little bit. Right. What happens when she dies? Is that sort of the end of Fren- the French success or mm. nope. where does it go from there? Nope. The French keep on a rolling um, and eventually are able to push the English out. Um, that's not the end. Obviously, the English and the French go to war with each other again and again. It's, you know, a multi-year thing, it seems like. Yeah. Um, but um, the there's a lot of debate about Joan's influence after that like you already mentioned before she's obviously like canonized she becomes the patron uh, patron saint of france um but from that point forward throughout the remainder of the war we do start to see a lot more innovative <clears throat> tactics and innovative strategies that we had seen in the battles that joan had been a part of but we had not necessarily seen in the war up to that point so There's not a ton of, like, concrete evidence that we can say that Joan specifically revolutionized the war specifically, Mm -hmm. but we do see a lot of things change from the very few years that she's part of the war from that point forward. So it does seem that she had a strategic and a tactical influence, but very, very importantly, she had a, um, like, ethical and a moral effect on the war Mm -hmm. because she had been that person that for a lot of France, she is like this prophesized figure who is here to save us. And and having a boost in morale can be a lot more important than people think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Having people develop a reason to fight or a reason for a war to be happening helps them to be able to stomach the heavy losses that come from war, to stomach the sacrifices when you're limited on food, when your land is getting ravaged by armies. When there is like a purpose, like humanitarian, ethical, whatever, it's a lot easier for people to be able to continue that war. And in a lot of ways, Joan became that for a lot of French people. What spiritual effect does her trial have on the French people? Because Mm -hmm. to me, if... The English have proven that mm-hmm. she's burnable yep. three times. <laughs> she's clearly a heretic. Mm-hmm. And are the French, like, does, do they waver at that point? Or, or is it more a rallying point? Like, you killed our girl. Yeah. I think it's it's a rallying point for a lot of people. Um, and furthermore, her mom is successful um, within a couple years or so. Her mom is successful in like ordering a retrial and having her retried and having in her, France, yeah, okay. and having her sentence um, retracted. So the idea of her being a heretic that is disproven in court. So even though the English, you know, quote unquote, proved it in order to be able to execute her, it later gets removed. 
So that helps a lot of people to kind of continue in that faith. But it was also just sort of a thing that um, – two-faceted here. Again, you have a lot of people – who firmly believe that God is always testing you and is always testing your faith. So for some people, believing in Joan in the first place was that test of faith, is that, sure, it makes no sense for me to think that a teenage girl is going to help us to win a war, but I have to believe in her because if she is doing this in God's name, I can't look like I'm not supporting God. Um, That'll kind of continue afterwards, too. Like, you have to continue to be able to support God and and to show that you believe fully with your whole soul. Um, but you also can look at it and be like, there's also no other reason why she should have been as successful as she was. She had no military experience, never had studied a thing about military in her life, but still every battle that she participated in, except for her attempts to try to take Paris, she was successful in. So there's no reason why that should be the case either. And again, like morale and and um, motivation have a lot to do with that. But still, it's easier for people to believe that there was something divine about that than it would be for people to believe that maybe she was a teenager who was just smart enough or had a strategic enough brain that she could look at that situation in Orleans and be like, well, this is probably the weakest part of the line. That's maybe where we should concentrate our efforts. Mm. For them, it was far easier to believe like God is the one that pointed her finger and told her where to attack because that's easier than believing that a woman of the time could have a strategic thought. Yeah. Teenagers are also kind of impulsive and Mm -hmm. like, you know, consequences be damned. And I wonder if that's a piece of her ability to do that, you know, just like – yeah. I, I'm not afraid of casualties, you right. know, like, whereas older people are like, oh, we, we, we are actually right. afraid of, of that, fun fact. Right, right. Well, and that's a thing in war all the time, too, is that, you know, like, people can be really judgmental of those in leadership, you know, sort of like I said at the beginning, where I was instantly, I'm like, yeah, just let Joan make some decisions. Like, when you are an officer and a real decision maker in war, it's like you're not playing with tinker toys. Like yeah. You're playing with real people's lives. So it's like, you know, and this is not just true of the Hundred Years War, but like in every war that we look at, it's so easy in hindsight to be like, well, why wouldn't you do this? Or why wouldn't you have been bold enough to try that? And it's like, mm-hmm. they have to think about those real lives. Like they have to be considerate of that fact. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> That's amazing. And, and, to her mom for right. shaping her daughter's legacy too. Mm-hmm. Moms are amazing. Yes. I love them. That's yes. awesome. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. And she's a saint yep. and recognized. And there's so much research and, and sources available about her. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Jackie, thank you so much <laughs> yeah. for coming on and telling me this story because I knew bits of it. Yeah. And I learned a lot from you today. Oh, okay. You're such a badass. <laughs> No, Joan's a badass. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> I am not Joan. <laughs> you, you are a facilitator of her legacy. I am a facilitator of badassery. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my business card. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for being with us today mm-hmm. and um, helping. If I were a middle or high school teacher today mm-hmm. listening to this and I wanted to build an inquiry, I am listening and there's so many things in here like good questions that come to mind. Yeah. Um, 
did she actually have a vision? Right. You know, there are, there seems to be a lot of sources available on that and yeah. at least two trials mm-hmm. where there are documents teachers could pull from. Yes. It also seems like there's a lot of doubt related to her mm-hmm. through the whole story. Yep. So is there a question that comes to mind when you think of that, that a teacher could look at with students? Um, I think that it's always positive to look at the um, issues of gender in the military. So why at the time they would want to keep women out of the service um, and particularly looking at Joan and looking at the decisions that she made, the strategies that she tried to employ, why French officials were kind of trying to keep her out of those discussions and out of those decisions. Um, And like we mentioned earlier, there was plenty of reason for them to want to do that, but kind of digging into the cultural aspects as to why would always be good for research. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Do you, it just seems like there is so much source work available here that Mm -hmm. if I was teaching European history or world history, the hunt, I mean, in world history, I don't know about other world history teachers, but I always try to stay out of Europe. Mm. But this is such an important context, I think, to what the old world looks like and the dynamics in Europe mm. on the precipice of uncovering the new world and mm-hmm. the conflicts between England and France that continue into yeah. the new world yeah. <laughs> and involve the future United States. So, um, this seems like an important one to touch on and to talk about the war without talking about Joan seems mm. kind of bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems really important to get in. Yeah. Well, and I think the whole conflict is so key in understanding the relationships between the English and the French, mm. um, which obviously have a huge effect on the new world. Um, so I think it's it's valuable to look at the conflict in those contexts because that will help you to understand that tension in colonization and how different Europeans, but particularly the French and the English, fought over the Caribbean and then fought over North America and all that kind of stuff. But then seeing Joan within the picture is is probably beneficial in seeing how much society itself gets wrapped up into these conflicts, because mm-hmm. especially when we're looking at wars, we struggle to even look at the independent independent soldier. We're looking at decision makers and mm-hmm. we're looking at strategy and individual battles. But I think she's this great example of how much just these these societies, these nations, the people are are brought into these conflicts because here's a 13-year-old girl who at least knows enough about this war going on that when she has this vision, she's just like, all right, yeah, like it's my job now to pop in and go and win this war. And it it didn't necessarily have to be a 13-year-old girl. It could have been some 16-year-old boy, some 19-year-old boy who has the vision like, I'm supposed to win this war now. War is just such an innate part of their lives at the time that it's it's a great look into the dynamic of the period and how the people of these nations saw themselves. I think she's so incredible because she doesn't have any right. Mm-hmm. And it, she's nobody. Yeah. Like I love, I, I was expecting you to say that she was some daughter of some noble man somewhere <laughs> who was like, he was on some camp, you know, he was a right. knight and he was, right. you know, whatever. And she studied military she theory studied so she could it. walk. Yeah. yeah. And like, she's nobody. And yeah. to me, it's such a cool story in, in 
lack of limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, in American history, we study people like uh, Molly Pitcher yep. and, you know, or fictitious or real or whatever the yeah. debate is over her um, and other women in, in early, early wars in American history mm-hmm. that we don't have context to. And yeah. and Joan is a great, you know, like Molly Pitcher didn't come out of nowhere. Women right. were like, you know what? I'm going to operate a cannon today. You <laughs> yes. know, like, like they've been doing yeah. that in war for as far back as we can go. And right. here's a good one to, right. to show at least in recent history. And, and odds are, if you ask the average person to like envision a, a woman warrior, they're going to envision some version of Joan. Yeah. And because she is the first one that comes to our minds. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that she managed to openly be a woman that was fighting. And mm. she is not the first or the last. Like like we've already said before, there were uh, Celtic women, um, Scandinavian women, really from all around the world throughout history, we have seen women fighting. We have seen them even leading in fighting. Boudicca led the yeah. Britons against the Romans. Um Shang-Chi ends up creating the most powerful uh, pirate confederacy of all time. If you look back at like the war in Troy, the Trojan War, um, which may not have actually ever happened at all. Um, but, you know, like the stories around it, the Amazons come yeah. into that. So like we always have this fascination with female warriors. And Joan was one of the first ones in sort of our more modern recognition of history that got to live as that open female warrior, but most that come after her don't. They have to disguise their identity to fight. And there are tens of thousands of women who fought in wars after Joan. And in many ways, Joan sort of became the lesson in being a woman in war, like openly being a woman in war. So most of them have had to take on the identity of a man. Yeah, covert. So, yeah. Right. So yeah. You know, Scottish and Irish women fought against the English. Uh, Deborah Sampson in the American Revolution took on the identity of a man. She got a soldier's pension yeah. after the war. Jenny Hodgers um, and 400 women fought in the Civil War that we can catalog dressed yeah. as men. So many more came. It's just, in many ways, Joan became sort of the lesson in being the female soldier. Yeah. That's so cool. And she got away with it. And I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for teaching me this important history. It's so awesome to have you here and to have my colleague down the hall sharing (laughs) in this venture. So thank you. Absolutely. Loved it. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.